0: I'm Jane Velez-Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author and TV journalist, and this is Unchained TV's Voice America podcast. For the next hour, you will hear the solution to most of the problems that plague our world, and it's a solution mainstream media ignores, even though it only requires us to make one simple change. Want to know what it is and transform your life? Let's get started. I am so honored to have full transparency, a dear friend and a fellow advocate for animals on today. The extraordinary attorney, Brian Pease, who does so much. He is all over the place fighting for animals in court everywhere, including the Supreme Court. So, Brian, let's start with the big news of the day. Prop 12 passed overwhelmingly by the voters of California in 2018, which, if we have to boil it down, says we you cannot sell meat in California uh, that was produced with extreme cruelty, especially extreme confinement. Pigs kept in crates the size of their bodies, never able to turn around. The pork industry has challenged this in the U.S. Supreme Court. You're involved. Lay it out. What's going on?
1: Yes, that's exactly right, Jane. And thank you so much for having me on. I love your show and I love your uh, intro about one simple change can solve so many of the world's problems. Um, and this is where the rubber really meets the road with um, cases like this. It is historic that the U.S. Supreme Court is, is now considering what was itself a historic law passed by the overwhelming majority of California voters um, to ban the sale of of pork from pigs that are confined in cages too small to move or turn around. Um, It also bans the sale of pork from uh, pigs whose mothers were kept in gestation crates that were too small to move or turn around in. Um, The pork industry has brought a challenge based on their allegations that this will cause um, a huge upheaval to the entire pork industry, which of course due to their own monopolization and uh, centralization of, the, of their production methods they've they've, they've really put um, family farms out of, out of business and there are all these massive corporate factory farms that are now supplying um, meat, milk, and eggs. And they have basically made this argument that if, if this law goes into effect, that we're going to have to make all these changes and it's going to cost lots of money and that California doesn't really have any Legitimate interests in making us do this, if they still want to sell pork. So what's interesting is that um, it seems that there, there's fairly universal agreement that if California wanted to say just outright ban pork or any other kind of meat, they could do that. But the issue here is that because this is a ban on um, the way that the the way the pigs are treated in largely in, in other states, because California doesn't have a lot of pig farms, um, the pork industry has made an argument that under the Dormant Commerce Clause of the US Constitution, which reserves to Congress the the right to regulate um, commerce between the states, um, that the court should infer that this would be, uh, even though Congress has not passed any law preempting California or stopping California from doing this, um, the pork industry argues that the court should infer that this this would be such a monumental upheaval to uh, the industry to have such uh, large upstream effects outside of California that uh, the law should be sh- stricken down and that California should not be able to, to pass such laws that, that impose uh, out-of-state burdens in order to um, protect their own p- uh, health, safety, and public morals, which is what this law is about.
0: Well, let me say this. Lower courts have rejected these arguments. Is that not true? So why does it even get up to the Supreme Court And when the arguments, the oral arguments were being heard very recently, did you get any sense on how they might vote? Uh, Did did anybody ask a question that you might say, well, if I was there, I'd be asking that question. That's a good sign.
1: So, well, the interesting thing about this case is that it it was dismissed at the pleading stage. So you're absolutely right that the lower courts have all universally um, rejected the pork industry's challenge through the case out of court. Um, that was what the, the um, federal district court did. And that's what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, did after reviewing the appeal. Um, and because it was dismissed at the pleading stage, what that means is that the pork industry filed a complaint that had allegations in it. And usually what happens is when you make allegations in a, in a complaint, um, it doesn't matter. Well, you have to have a good faith belief that they're true, but you don't have to, prove that they're true you're supposed to be given an opportunity to prove that those allegations are true um so because this was dismissed at the pleading stage meaning that um the the, they were never able to have a, a trial or any kind of factual inquiry into their allegations um it's it's really an issue of should they be allowed to prove those allegations or does it not even matter now i believe and what the lower courts believe is that um, it doesn't matter. what What they've alleged does not constitute a sufficient basis to to stop California from um, implementing its own laws regarding the sale of products in the state of California. Um, what it where it sounds like the Supreme Court is going to land on this is send it back to the lower courts with some kind of guidance about you, you need to um, let them plead their well, they've, they've made their allegations, let them try to prove those allegations. And then maybe laying out some additional standards for um, what types of interests constitute sufficient interest for California to be able to um, enforce such laws that may have uh, effects on on businesses that are that are out of state. So it's it's really it's kind of I mean it's 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 a technical kind of esoteric issue. It kind of it doesn't um, you know when we're talking about the extreme cruelty and, and suffering that's involved in in um, and animal product production um and it this sounds like a more of an abstract thing and just like an abstract legal principle but it really i mean this is this is where um we really determine the the effect that this this is where we're able to really hold these industries accountable and be able to make sure that that california can um, can pass laws that will uh, ban products of extreme animal cruelty Um, and yes it is going to cost industry quite a bit of money and that's why they are so uh, so opposed to it and trying to get this overturned but that is the question that's that that the courts are going to be laying a, a framework for so it's so what um basically what right does california have to to pass a, a, a law in california that could have um, an economic impact out of state and historically it's been um it doesn't matter if california wants to pass a law to protect its um public health safety and morals um, it's free to do so, even if it's going to have economic impacts out of state. Um, but there are other types of laws that there are some balancing interests that come in into play. Whereas if you pass a law that doesn't really have much of a local benefit, but it, it imposes some extreme burden on out of state, um, on, on uh, other states or businesses in other states, then that law would, so that kind of law would not be upheld. Um, but it sounded like what the Supreme Court was really concerned about, and particularly the conservatives on the Supreme Court. Um, they've been on an anti-union crusade for decades now, um, and now they have the, the supermajority to, to really um, to, to go after uh, to, to, with, the, with their union-busting agenda. Um, and they see this as kind of akin to, okay, if you can ban the sale of a product from a pig that's kept in extreme confinement because that's seen as immoral, um, what about... Um, sale products that are not made in a union shop. Can that be banned as well? And that's kind of like such an extreme, I mean, for us as animal rights activists, it's just such a stupid, idiotic thing to even say because it's like, you're talking about extreme, horrific suffering versus, you know, an, e- an economic um, issue of, of whether someone can, I mean, yeah, union membership is important, but it's not even on the level of not even being able to move or turn around. Um, one of the things that the... Um, uh, Justice Kagan asked um, to the pork industry lawyer, "Was if we were back in the days of slavery, um, would California be able to ban products, or would any state be able to ban products made by slave labor?" And the pork industry actually actually said, um, "No." It, their, their argument they were, they were logically consistent and said, "No, back then, before we had the Thirteenth Amendment, before slavery was banned, states wouldn't be free to do that." No, I think that's an extreme position, and that's and the pork industry's position is extreme. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we're at is they're making an extreme argument. Um, the state of California is defending the law and, and, uh, it'll probably come back down to the lower courts with some instructions for some type of, um, you know, factual inquiry into what, what are the, what are California's precise interests and what are the out of state of facts and then balancing those, uh, those interests.
0: Yeah. And thank you for looking into the camera. eye when you're talking, appreciate it, Brian, it's a little bit above you don't look at okay. me. Okay. So, um, This is so important. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, if it were its own country. I was just reading news about England today, which just elected the United Kingdom, elected a new prime minister or brought to power a new prime minister. And they said, England is the sixth largest economy. So I was like, wow, California as a state is a bigger economy than the United Kingdom. Wow. Okay. so what happens here affects the rest of the nation and the world now it was way back in 2018 that 63 percent of california voters passed this it should have been implemented in the first of january 1st 2022 and yet here we are four years now we're waiting for the supreme court That's probably going to take it. I've talked to a couple of lawyers. They say probably till February or March. Then they're going to send it back to a lower court. Meanwhile, these pigs are trapped in crates the size of their bodies, unable to turn around. If you did this to a dog for a week, you'd be accused of animal torture. Okay, it's clearly, clearly animal torture. You literally see them chomping on the bars in front of them, breaking their teeth because they're going psychotic. They can't scratch themselves. They can't turn around. My question to you, Brian, is, did any question from the Supreme Court justices focus on the suffering of the animals? From the articles I read, I didn't find any, but I'm hoping to be wrong. Because that in itself would be morally reprehensible that they had a whole oral argument about this issue and never discussed the key moral question. Is it morally reprehensible to do this to animals? And the obvious answer is yes.
1: That was not really discussed at the oral argument. It's in the papers. It's in the briefing. um, And it's, um, yeah, it is reprehensible that this isn't something that's that's front and center, but it is something that was in the briefing and in the papers. And at the end of the day, states can decide for themselves um, what constitutes an, an immoral, um, in other words, these animal cruelty issues, it's so extreme that basically everybody should agree once they see what's actually going on. Um, but as far as the Le- the legal question the Supreme Court is concerned with is is really just does does a state get to pass laws based on its own concept of what's moral or immoral? Um, so at, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter um, what the so the Supreme Court isn't going to be ruling, and no court is going to be ruling on whether um, whether pigs should be cupped in in cages like this. That's a political question. California has already answered that political question. The answer is no, um, for for California. Um, but what the california what the u.s supreme court uh is is ruling on is um is not so much you know whether california is right or wrong it's just whether what what are what are the asserted interests that california has and then what are the out-of-state impacts and then and then balancing those those impacts so to be clear um it is the law in california that you cannot confine pigs in cages that are like this um the question is whether the products that are sold in in stores can uh, have to comply when they're made out of state. So that's that's kind of that's what's going on is you have other states that are saying, well, this is perfectly fine. We're going to sell these products. California is saying you can only sell the products if you modify your your farming practices. And then the Supreme Court is 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 weighing in on whether that's um, whether that's a a permissible regulation or not.
0: Okay, I get it. They're not allowed to Uh, or they're not supposed to focus on the cruelty. However, we're all human beings, okay? And I'm right here, Um, we're all human beings. And I did ask um, one of the other animal organizations that are involved in fighting this, and I don't know exactly technically what you would call their brief, but they said they did include videos of pig gestation crates because you can write five books about pig gestation crates, but one minute or 30 seconds of video with these pigs screaming at the top of their lungs because they're trapped in there in in warehouses with 50,000 of them. It will say more than all the literature in the world. Do you think they will look at that video if it's included in a brief and that that could influence their decision broad
1: um. So it may be that, if if not the justices, at least uh, some of the clerks may, may look at the video. They are supposed to look at all of the, all of the papers that are filed. Um, I included in the amicus brief that I filed on behalf of the Animal Protection and Rescue League, um, some photographs of what these gestation crates look like, um, and also lengthy descriptions from various books, um, like Diet for New America uh, by John Robbins, um, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Bauer. Um, and uh, Matthew Scully's book Dominion has a lot of really um, uh, at length descriptions of, of the horrors of these factory farms. Um, so I did include it in the briefs and some and some of the other amicus briefs that were filed um, focused on that as well. Um, but again it, it's it's it gets down to the question of um, so the, the other kind of abstract legal principle that it sounds you know like we're, we're talking about something that's that's not uh, as important I mean, you know, the cruelty is so compelling, but then to, to get there procedurally and legally, um, it comes down to w- which jurisdictions have the have the right in a in a federalist system um, to to pass laws that 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 impact other other jurisdictions. So, um, so when you when we talk about this extreme cruelty, the key thing for the Supreme Court is that this this cruelty is occurring um in other states so that what the pork industry is trying to frame this as is california is basically trying to regulate other conduct that's occurring in other states that's not what's happening at all california is regulating the sale of a product in california which the voters have deemed to be immoral based on how it's produced so it's an important distinction that we're not trying to regulate what a farm does in another state we're trying we're trying to regulate what can be sold in the state of california and this is actually um, an issue where the, the property status of animals and the non-personhood of animals can actually be useful um, in a legal sense. And the reason is that if California, um, if the basis for California passing this law is that we deem the sale of this product to be immoral and the pork industry wants to argue and, and a lot of their their complaint and their whole argument is it's 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 actually better for for pig welfare to keep them in these cages where they can't move. Right? If you can believe it, I mean, this is a major part of their argument. If you read these briefs and they're all on the Supreme Court website, anybody can download them. They're making these crazy arguments that that it's actually less, um, that it's actually more humane and they should be allowed to, to prove these allegations in court. Um, but at the end of the day, the fact that animal cruelty laws do not really exist to protect animals is, um, because animals are not legal persons, animal cruelty laws exist to protect society from immoral behavior and to protect people from being exposed to immoral behavior. That means that it doesn't matter where the animal is being mistreated. If the product is being sold in California, this is an animal cruelty law that's based on the right of the state of California to protect its own public morals. So it's the same argument for why you would pass an animal cruelty law to stop somebody from doing something cruel to an animal in the state of California, selling the product of animal cruelty falls under the same category. Even though the the, the harm of the animal is occurring in another state, um, I actually find it quite useful that it's not really a legally cognizable harm that's going to the animal. The harm is to the people that are being exposed to whether it's the cruelty, uh, the cruel treatment of the animal itself or the sale of a product of animal cruelty. It's the same, should be the same equation. So we should have the same right to pass laws banning the sale of a product of animal cruelty as we do clearly to pass laws banning um, cruelty to animals in the state of California.
0: So let me ask you, um, there were, on the other side, your defense is not just the cruelty issue and the right of California to make its own rules, but also that if for some reason um, the pork industry won, that would affect a lot of environmental rules as well. I mean, it's not only uh, pig gestation crates that California has said, we will not sell products that are made this way. There are other environmental laws and various laws that various states have passed and said, if you want to sell products in this state, they have to adhere to X, Y, Z, or they can't contain X, Y, Z. So I had read that there were other, other uh organizations, other areas of interest that were very alarmed by this, because it could have other consequences way beyond uh, even animal welfare.
1: That's absolutely right. And there have been alarm bells going off, um, especially with environmental laws um, and it really, any laws on the sale of any product, which there are many, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of laws, Um, regulating or banning the sale of of various products because of in-state concerns. And so there's been um, a lot of uh, concern that that by the Supreme Court taking this up, if they were to issue a very broad, sweeping decision striking down Prop 12, that that would basically gut the power of states to take away or to, to pass laws um, that may have some impact out of state. It doesn't look like the Supreme Court is headed in that direction. It sounds like from the oral arguments that it's going to be a more, um, it's, it's going to be just basically pretty pretty um, straightforward opinion that's, that's going to be telling the state that it, it, they have to allow um, the pork industry to uh, try to prove its allegations and then to balance the competing interests um, but it doesn't sound like the Supreme Court, but who knows. I mean, with this with this kind of rogue Supreme Court that we have now, um, whether they would make some broad sweeping pronouncement that states are no longer free to, to pass such laws. But it doesn't look like they're headed in that direction. It's, it looks like it's going to just go back to, uh, for the standard type of balancing test that is applied in, in a lot of these cases, which um, I mean, it, up until now, it's, it's usually been unless the state tried to directly regulate conduct in another state or pass like a price control law, something like that, that impacts what another state is, is doing um, directly, that only that would be held un- unconstitutional. You wouldn't um, strike a law down in a state because it's just because it's going to have um, some some vast impact in another state as long as it's tied to your own interests in, in your state. But there is still a balancing test that, that gets. Um, Let me important. jump in.
0: Only because we got some callers. Uh, Paige, a quick call, quick, quick call from you. Question. Sorry. Yes. Um, hi. Thank you so much. Um, yes. My question is: There are so many consumers in California. I, I watch them as they purchase this humane, sustainable. Um, meat and one of my understanding is from this argument that you're bringing forward is that these are lives um, for good consumers and they're not aware of that this is happening so that's the push and I, I remember being out there and collecting petitions and hearing people who were um, who still wanted to go ahead and consume the pork that they wanted to make sure so how do how do we get this even wider out to the public and what can we do as the public at this point thank you so much
1: yeah thank you for the question so anytime um something like this goes before the the supreme court and anytime there is um anytime there's whether it's political or legal or legislative action um it gets in the press people talk about it people look into um what is it that that voters are so concerned about here um, so, word is getting out. People are becoming more and more aware of the extreme cruelty involved in um, animal product production. Um, but as far and, and certainly um, once the law takes effect, then um, it, w- it will be illegal for people to purchase products that are. Uh, where the pigs have been confined in this manner, but that doesn't mean that we stop educating consumers that it's still, it's still not humane. So that's another thing that it's worth pointing out is that, that there's really no such thing as humane meat. It's all produced through extreme animal cruelty, but some is much worse than, than others. And, and by passing laws like this, it, it, a lot, it, it moves the ball forward. It lets us take a stand. It lets us get the word out to consumers and to voters. that This is extreme unacceptable, cruelty that we're not going to tolerate, we're not going to allow, it's going to cost the industry um, a lot of money, which that, by the way, that's not illegally legally permissible, and this is kind of, This is the debate that we're getting into, is that California can't pass a law just because we want to cost, you know, cost the industry and some of their state money. That's the, that's the pork industry's argument for why, um, why this law should be struck down. But California has a very strong interest in protecting its own public health safety morals, and it will happen to have this effect that it's going to cost the industry a lot of money, um, and this is an industry that, that spends um, they, they spend a lot of money shaping consumer opinion and buying off members of Congress and um, and and re- basically uh, writing um, nutrition guidelines that are that are based on sham science so th- so anything that costs the industry money is a good thing um, but again that's not the reason for this law the reason is to take a stand um, morally and it's a, it's a make it's advanced um, what we're to draw the line that we're not going to allow certain things to be done to animals, we're not going to allow certain products to be sold when certain things are done to animals. But it doesn't mean we stop there and say this is now acceptable. I mean, we still continue to educate and, t- and tell tell folks got, this we've
0: is- got 30 seconds. When do you think this is going to be decided? It goes back to a lower court. How long does that take?
1: Uh, well, the Supreme Court will issue its decision or uh, probably um, spring or early summer of next year, and then it'll come back down to the lower court and then. And and then at that point, I mean, a a a case can take um, can take years uh, at the the lower court before there's a trial, or it could take at least a year. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, based on we haven't seen the decision yet. The Supreme Court's going to issue, so there may be it it may be that um, the law can still take effect in the meantime. There may be ways to make that happen as well. Can the
0: Supreme uh, Court say this law takes effect? The arguments are invalid.
1: It could certainly say that. I don't think they okay, will. So if but, they
0: said that, just presume just to cover the bases, it could go into effect right away.
1: That's correct. Yep. OK.
0: And if they don't say that and they put it back to a lower court, could that lower court then also throw it out and say, no, we're not going to go forward with a trial on this?
1: Uh, it could. There could be. So what happens before trials trial is there's just stuff called summary judgment, where now it's not just based on the allegations. It's based on what are the undisputed facts, the actual facts, not just allegations. So that's a little quicker than a trial. And so that could come that could come sooner. So that could come, you know, within a year, actually.
0: All right. Well, we've got those pigs are in those crates then for, it looks like, at least a year, maybe two. Who knows? Thank you, Brian. Now, we're going to take a short break on Voice America Radio. We're staying live on Facebook. When we come back, we're going to talk about another big case that Brian is tackling. Stopping the bulldozing of L.A.'s last coastal wetlands, the Bayona wetlands. Stay right there.
2: guarantee It will be the best hour of your week.
0: We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Welcome back to Unchained TV on Voice America Radio. I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, and you are now re entering a portal to a transformative way of living. All right. Back, people. You are here on Voice America Radio, simulcast on Facebook, on Shay TV Facebook, and it's all over Spotify, iTunes, etc. Now we are talking to one of my heroes, Brian Pease, who is a nationally recognized civil rights, environmental, and animal rights attorney. He's fighting in the U.S. Supreme Court for Animals, but he is also fighting here in California to stop the bulldozing of LA's last. Coastal wetlands, uh, approximately a square mile, that is home to 1,700 species. Some of them are threatened, some of them are endangered. And there are several lawsuits against this very misguided plan that basically is going to chase off all these animals who have nowhere else to go. Okay, I see them daily. I happen to live in the area. And um, I've taken up this cause because I see the animals every day. I see the pelicans, I see the egrets, I see the cormorants, I see the skunks and the raccoons. And I see these animals, there are foxes, okay? And yes, there are coyotes there too. And this is where they call home. It's the last place of wilderness they have in Southern California, in the wetlands on the coast. And it's also a very crucial migratory landing spot for birds. So they are calling it a restoration, the people who are pushing this. We are calling that a scam, a phony restoration. Total destruction is not restoration. If I told you that Buckingham Palace, which I visited and is kind of little tad run down. I was a little shocked. So this needs a bit of a restoration. Well, if somebody said, yeah, we're going to restore it, we're going to bulldoze all of Buckingham Palace and dig a hole uh, hundreds (laughs) of feet deep. You'd say, well, that's not restoration. That's destruction. It's the same thing here. Destruction, wholesale destruction with bulldozers is not restoration. So let's go to Brian Pease. Can you give us more of the elevator pitch on where this is because this is an extremely complicated case. Try to boil it down for us. Thank you, Brian.
1: Sure. Thanks, Jane. And Thank you for all your leadership on on this issue. And and uh, defend Bona Wetlands has been doing a great job politically, um, get, getting the word out about this because a, a lot of folks aren't aren't aware that this is happening behind the scenes that our government is is, is planning to bulldoze this. Area and under the guise of a phony restoration, um, so there's there are a couple moving parts in this case. One of them involves um, a bond measure that was passed back in 2000, also called called Prop 12. We were talking about um, the 2018 Proposition 12 earlier in the segment, which is the um, the banning extreme confinement and sale of products of extreme confinement for uh, farmed animals. Um, but this Proposition 12 back in 2000 was a bond measure that was passed um, in order to acquire and protect and restore the the Biona. Well, it, did, it didn't specifically say Biona wetlands, but the way it was worded and the size of it, and and it was clearly directed at at Biona wetlands. It was the only wetlands that would fall under this category. Um, so there were millions of dollars that were appropriated. That now um, the the California State Coastal Conservancy, as well as um, some of some of the um, nonprofits that have been um, captured by uh, essentially by uh, anti environmental interests, as, as has the California State Coastal Conservancy, um, put forth this this plan where they're going to use this money not to acquire more wetlands, not to actually re- restore anything, but to do, as you said, a bulldozing project where they would just completely um, got everything and re- remake it. And, and as something that was never there before, which is they want it to be. Uh, um, a, a, a basically, a, a saltwater uh, bay as opposed to a, a, a marsh that we have now, and, and the ecosystems there now. And their argument has been, well, it was, it, it's gone through many phases the, over thousands and thousands of years, so we can just pick any point in, in you know geological history, and that's that's what we're restoring. So that's so clearly just at that point, words lose all meaning when you're going to call that a restoration. Um, so where the case is at is there's first of all. Um, the case that, that we filed challenging the misspending of this bond money. Um, and then in late uh, 2021, actually right before Christmas, um, just right right at the end of the year there, as, as people were leaving for holidays and things, um, the California um, Department of Fish and Wildlife certified the EIR, which is the Environmental Impact Report. Um, so basically giving the go-ahead, giving the green light to go ahead with this project. So now we're challenging um, that that eir so that's a separate uh, legal challenge so there's there's a there's the earlier case that we're still pursuing to, to stop the misspending of the bond money on this project um, and then there's this other case that we brought challenging the sufficiency of the environmental impact report
0: all right we if- got a, I think we've got a caller on hold Marsha from California your question yeah. or thought
2: yeah.
1: Well, my question um, is, I'm
0: very concerned about this bond money expenditure because I'm one of many who worked really hard to get that bond passed because we wanted to buy more uh, fragile wetland areas in Los Angeles County. And I'm just stunned that they have used all of this money for planning a destructive project for the last you know, ten or twelve years. I guess it's been. So I'm wondering, what you think the,
1: um, you know, how do we, how do we hold the government accountable for this? And do you think that this lawsuit has got some possibilities for that? Yeah, thank you. So that's Marcia Hanscom. Who, um, you, you're doing it, Marcia. You're, you're, you're making it. You're, <laughs> you are holding the government accountable. So <laughs> thank you for that and what you everything that you're doing politically. Uh, and, and leading defend wetlands, um, but as far, yeah, legally, yes, we do. We certainly um, have very strong legal arguments for why the, the the bond money should only be used for what the voters intended it for. And then, as far as challenging the EIR, um, it's the, the EIR is. Just, I mean, you could speak to this uh, just as as well as anybody about how flawed the EIR is and, and why that should be set aside. And for for listeners that aren't uh, familiar with um, CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act, it's how it's how projects get approved in the state of California. Um, in order to go forward with a project like this, there has to be an environmental impact report. It has to be sufficient in, the, in that they have to have actually studied the, the impacts. And so it doesn't, it's not a way to actually say that you can't go forward with a project. The, the agency that, that um, signs off on it just has to be Aware of the impacts, the public has to be made aware of it. So we have to actually know what we're talking about. So they can't just say, "Well, we're doing this," but it's really something else. There has to be a sufficient environmental impact report so that everybody can know what's actually being approved. So the politicians um, that that or any whether it's an elected body or any any body that's going to be approving this, they're accountable to what's what they're actually approving. So we know what they're actually approving, and this environmental impact report does not do that. It does not sufficiently um, lay out what's, what's actually going to occur. I mean, they, they, and it's, it's so sloppy. I mean, they've taken things like um, the, the flood, like just with the, the, the flood control measures, um, they, they use the wrong numbers and then they just cut, they just put in other numbers and didn't make do any further analysis and just say, here's other numbers. And it doesn't, so none of it adds up and, and it's, it's going to be set aside. Um, but again, that doesn't necessarily stop the project. It just means they have to go back and do a legally sufficient environmental impact report. But there are other issues like uh, at the federal level with, Um, Getting the Army Corps of Engineers to sign off on an environmental impact statement, which which still hasn't happened. So there are a lot of hurdles for for, um, CDFW to get past before they can actually go forward with this project. And we're going to fight them every step of the way.
0: And the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Fish and Wildlife is spearheading this project that is going to chase off 1,700 species during a time of an extinction crisis. We've got an extinction crisis right now globally. And here in the United States, we point the finger at the wetlands and uh, the uh, Amazon rainforest and say, you've got to stop destroying that rainforest. Well, A, it's being destroyed for cattle grazing land. And guess who the biggest consumers of the cattle are the United States consumers. So it comes back to us there, but also how can we tell other countries or other areas of the world, other areas of the United States, you shouldn't be destroying your wetlands when we're doing it here. And um, it just boggles my mind that an agency that is supposed to protect wildlife, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, is essentially leading this. Now, there is a gas company connection. We don't even need to mention the gas company, but there is a giant fossil fuel industry connection to this. And critics say, this is really something the fossil fuel industry is pushing because there is a giant aquifer about a mile beneath the wetlands, way below the wetlands, I can't say with certainty where, where they collect Uh, gas and then they pipe it to sell and they have to, at some point, upgrade the pipes. Can you address how that might factor into all of this?
1: Sure. So, yeah, that's another thing that the public would just be extremely disturbed and is disturbed when people learn about this that there is this massive natural, well, do kind of called natural gas. It's not natural. It's, you know, gas, it's made by fracking. So they, they frack it, they pump it in from our, our, uh, other areas, and they're actually storing it in these, in these aquifers under the wetland. So it's a, it's a massive um, public safety risk. Uh, but, the, but it's, it's owned um, by the, the, so part of it is owned by the gas company. And then the other part is, is CDFW. So yeah, there, there, there may be something going on there where in order for, the gas company to be able to upgrade its uh, uh, the their equipment on the surface and and whatever they're doing there that that this would somehow benefit them, um, but it's I mean both things are bad the gas storage that needs to end but then also the the um, this phony restoration whether it's whether you know that's part of the reason or or if they're just doing it because they want to you know disnify the place um, that that's bad too so I mean it's not really surprising that CDFW is behind this because um i mean that happens everywhere where these agencies that are supposed to be tasked with protecting the environment are really only tasked with they're, they're taken over by um industry representatives and and people that are interested in really in in, uh, in consumptive uses of wildlife so historically it's been um you know hunting and fishing and trapping and stuff like that not not that many people really engage engage in th- those activities anymore so that's not as big of a a thing. I mean, it still is, and they're definitely still, you know, run by these, these yahoos that want to do this stuff. Um, but the, uh, industries as well, um, and, and, you know, fracking industry and the fossil fuel industries, and they have their, their, their tentacles and all all of these agencies and, and, and the legislature and everything else. So, um, it's really not that surprising that we have to, we have to fight them in the courts.
0: So where does this stand? Um, there are several lawsuits. I know you are actively representing uh, the plaintiffs in one of them. Where does it stand? When are we going to find out? And what are we going to find out?
1: Well, the case challenging the misspending of the bond money is slowly working its way through the courts. So we have a, a number of causes of action there that actually have to be heard by different judges. Because in Los Angeles Superior Corps, we have uh, there's a writ department where writs of mandate are heard. So that's one of our causes of action. But then we have other causes of action that are going to be heard by another judge. Um, and then the environmental impact report challenge is being heard in yet another court. And that's um, that's scheduled now for a final hearing early next year. So that part of it, at least challenging the sufficiency of the environmental impact report will happen early next year. But as far as challenging the um, the misspending of the bond money, that may that may take a little bit longer.
0: Now, um, I've also read that. There is this move to do this piecemeal because there has been so much outrage, protests, uh, all sorts of um, disruptions regarding this. People waking up and saying, We don't want this, that now they are trying to do it kind of piecemeal. Is that legal?
1: No, piecemealing a project is not legal. Um. it does appear that CDFW is trying to do cer- certain things that they're arguing do not fall under the, the definition of the actual project and that there are things that, you know, if they're going in there with hand tools or things like that or, do, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, um, they're claiming that um, that it's not part of the project or that it's a different project. And so to the extent that that is occurring, um, then that would be a separate challenge as well.
0: But that's not, are we challenging that? Is that being challenged now?
1: Well, so far it's, it's th- th- there's, the environmental impact report is—it's kind of a moving target as far as what they've said they're—they're they're planning to do, and—and and it's not. That's another reason why the environmental impact report needs to be set aside and redone because there is not there is not a firm definition of what the project even is. So that's that's highly problematic. But as far as um, what CDFW is actually doing, if they were to, for instance, go in there and try to start bulldozing part of it or doing. You know something that that falls under the project that hasn't been approved, then we would certainly rush in and challenge that. But there isn't anything that 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 right at this moment um, that we're that we're challenging that they're actually doing. But as far as the environmental impact report, um, it it does uh, take a very kind of fl- fluid um, uh, definition of what what it, what this project involves. So in other words, if this environmental impact report were were approved and we're allowed to go forward, it's it's so. It basically gives them carte blanche to do a lot of different things that's not very clear in the in the environmental impact report what it is, and that's that's one of the main reasons that we're challenging it.
0: The other thing is that there are threatened and endangered species there. Isn't there an endangered species act? I it boggles my mind that in Los Angeles, considered one of the most progressive and environmentally friendly cities on the planet, there is a plan to bulldoze areas where endangered species live.
1: Well, Los Angeles isn't as progressive as, <laughs> as people think, and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely disturbing, and and that would be another uh, basis. But of course, they would they would uh, go through whatever uh, Endangered Species Act uh, permitting things that they need for that and waivers, things like that. That uh, would be another thing that we could challenge. But we're we're not at the point yet where there's actually where any kind of bulldozing is actually happening. They, we're still at this point challenging the environmental impact report, but that would, that's definitely a big part of it, that they, it is going to have all this impact on, on endangered species. And, and that's a huge part of it.
0: Well, I've attended um, a member of defendbionawetlands.org. I've attended numerous Zoom hearings, and I've also attended some in-person hearings where I was asked, where I asked a proponent, somebody who was, um, Representing the bulldozing side, I said, Where are the animals going to go? And she said, Across the street. <laughs> now, I live in this area. Where? To the Home Depot parking lot? There is no across the street. This is the last coastal wetlands in LA. And this is the problem. You know, I'm on next door and I see people talking about, Oh, I saw a coyote. Oh, I'm all scared. Well, this is where the coyotes live. Are you saying that these animals have no right to live anywhere? Is that what we're saying as a species? And when we if if indeed we make that nightmare scenario occur, it's going to spell our own doom because uh, we see the decimation of the bee populations. There's a natural order. And if we wipe out all wildlife, it's going to trigger an ecological collapse. I don't know that you can make those arguments in court. But I think you can make an argument, maybe, that there was a recent report that California is overdue for like uh, a massive flood producing uh, rainstorm. And that the last one was more than 100 years ago. And it could happen any day with rising sea levels. And the Bayona wetlands is right in Playa del Rey, uh, near the ocean. It's at the mouth of the ocean. we know that sea levels are rising more quickly. We know that extreme weather phenomenon is happening more intensely than even the scientists had, have anticipated. The idea that you're going to choose this time and this place to basically get rid of levees that contain water and dig um, to potentially create, like, exacerbate flooding that would exist, it's mind-boggling to me
1: yeah no it is and, and this is part and parcel of, with really what's what's going on all over and this is why we have to keep keep fighting keep holding industries and government accountable because they're going to keep doing this they're going to keep destroying things and keep trying to uh monetize everything and we need to stand up and fight and we have certain tools at are disposal and one of those we, we have political tools we have legislative tools and we have litigation as well that we, that we can use to uh to, to seek to hold industries and agencies accountable. So thank you for helping to make that happen.
0: Well, yeah. And, you know, I think that they thought this was going to fly under the radar because I've lived in this area for 32 years and I didn't know that there was a giant gas storage aquifer below the wetlands until somebody invited me to the first protest. And then I was like, wow. And then I remembered that when I was a reporter at KCAL, I led I I covered a story where Martin Sheen led indigenous leaders in this area fighting Playa Vista, which is a giant city within a city that's right at the edge of the wetlands. And then I remembered, wait, the developers told me, don't worry, there's always going to be this ecological reserve that nobody can touch. That's why they created the restoration, critics say, is because legally they can't just dig it up because it's an ecological reserve. So they have to come up with a cover story in essence to enable this bulldozing. And so it's it's really Orwellian, but um, we have only a couple of minutes. I wanna ask you about you. You do so much more than this and we've just scratched the surface. I mean, the list of things that you have done in terms of civil rights, environmental law, animal protection, what makes you tick, Brian?
1: Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of what I was saying, holding these industries and the government accountable. And they, and it's really the same. I and mean, what you're talking about, the Orwellian language and and, um, and our government lying to us and industries lying to us, it's it's true across the board. So, um, for instance, with, with, with housing issues and we see that the, the homelessness uh, crisis spiking in California and you know, leaders give um, lip service to things that they're doing, but they're not using uh, evidence-based. Um, solutions, and they're and they're and they're doing things that are completely contrary to actually pre- preventing uh, crises like this from happening. So it's it's happening all over. We have to keep holding um, we have to keep holding government agencies accountable, and keep holding uh, industries accountable as well. And um, yeah, I mean that's I guess as far as what makes what motivates me is is the injustice of it and the unfairness of it, and the fact that um, these these entities hold the the power and we need to take, take some of that power back and we need to start, um, uh, making, just holding them accountable and making them actually do what they, they're supposed to be doing and claim that they are doing.
0: Is there anything in your personal history, this is the last question, that has inspired you to devote so much time, energy and effort to this?
1: Um, I mean, I think just seeing what's, what's going on, I don't know how it is. I mean, these days with, you know, with like anybody can access anything on the internet that kind of cuts both ways because you know you can see anybody can see the horror of what's happening but then there's all this like fake stuff on there too so that people don't know what to believe whereas back you know when i got involved in the early 90s with activism and animal activism environmental activism um it wasn't i mean you, know, you learn the stuff from books or you get you know v- vhs tapes and be like here look at this this is what happens on fur farms or factory farming you know it's disturbing it's my mu- it, it sticks it sticks with you um, so that, I mean, that's, you know, that's been what's influenced me. So it's, so it's interesting how today with just the flood of information, there's actually more information available, but it's drowned out by all this misinformation. So, you know, I don't know how we bridge that gap and get more people to actually see what's, what's actually going on and be motivated to do something. Well,
0: that's why we de- do what we do at Unchained TV. We're a global streaming network that is a portal to another way of living where you can see Uh, The reality. I call it breaking through the meat matrix, where you get on the other side and you see, oh my gosh, yes, your ham sandwich doesn't come from a ham tree. There was a pig involved, and that pig was tortured and kept in a crate the size of her body, never able to turn around. And she went mad. And that's not something that's good for you to ingest (laughs) because, uh, first of all, a lot of people ingest pigs via processed meat. Processed meat is officially cancer-causing according to the World Health Organization. But on another level, you know, do we really wanna support that kind of systemic torture um, on a global scale never before seen in history? Uh, no. And that's why California passed Prop 12 that said, you can't sell products if it's uh, a product of extreme animal confinement, which equals torture. We will see what happens with Prop 12 and we will see what happens with the Bayona wetlands. But this is our hero crusader, Brian Tees fighting the good fight in courts around the country here in California and all the way up to the U S Supreme court. Thank you, Brian, for all you do. You are my hero.
1: Thanks Jane. You are my hero as well. So keep
0: it up. <laughs> it's a team effort. Thank you. <laughs> all right. See you next time on voice America radio.